Ever Wanted to Watch Challenge. On each episode, we challenge ourselves to find and watch a film of, of a particular type and then report back the results to each other and you find listeners. My name is Mike Wynn. And I'm Aaron Spears. This episode's challenge, we went back with one of our year challenges. It's the year 1999 in film. I guess we should probably do a little bio because we were alive and active moviegoers for this one. I think what was our, our previous uh, year challenge was 81? 80s, yeah. 80s. Yeah, which... Um, I was alive, but I wasn't, I don't have any memory of going or being taken to the <laughs> movies then, but 99 is different. Um, I think we were both college by that point. I was, I was just in, I was still in high school. In high school. I, I was just about in 99. I turned 16. So. Okay. Gotcha. I was, I was college, you were high school for that one. But yeah. <laughs> prime time for going to the movies whenever the hell you want though. I think. Yes. Yeah. And look, looking at the, looking at the list of films, this was this particular year was one of those years that was seminal for me just going kind of really coming into my own, into my movie tastes and also just finding those friends who also really enjoyed movies. I think that that is really something that for that particular year just really stands out to me. Same here. It's one of those, actually I hadn't thought about it until you just worded it that way that like I had certain friends that became closer friends Yes, because they were always up for going to, like and it whittled it down to like the crazier shit. I was going to watch it like <laughs> repertoire houses or or our beloved local cinematheque or something. Um, I was like, OK, we're getting closer and closer because it got down to maybe like a couple of <laughs> a couple of close yeah. ones that were up for anything. Uh, but as it expanded out, like, you know, if we're going to see I think it was it was a Star Wars year. Like that was a huge group of people, you know, going to see that. So, oh, yes. Yeah, that's it. It is. Yeah. My film, my core film crew kind of did get whittled down <laughs> this time period well also it was kind of interesting because the the first part of the year uh just looking at some of the things that came out like say for example varsity blues uh she's all that and and stuff like that you know like those type of movies were yeah. something that in that time period i was I, I think i was still in my freshman year of high school there was like the early part of the year i was like still kind of entrenched in that teen movie oh world. yeah but then as this year went along there were so many movies that kind of blew my mind uh that that yeah. really got me more on this slight art house track or um more independent yeah. films or maybe i guess in the grand scheme they're still considered studio films but there were you know those serious dramas that really mm -hmm. sometimes don't even get released anymore by major yeah. studios they're just now regulated to a24 neon and, right uh, right and like uh but uh but this year really strong year overall i i would say um just when i scroll on this on the long list of the things that came out i'm like damn this was this was yeah <laughs> yeah one of the the classes i do is like the format is called a year in film and yeah. we've done like, you know, the classic ones are like 1939 is the greatest movie. Like, and so yeah. we'll go through some of those years, but I always include 1999, even though a couple of people are like, it's so recent though. And I was like, first of all, thank you for saying that, that that's recent. That makes me yeah. feel not, you know, like I'm in my forties, but uh, going through it, once you start going, like you said, just genre wise, you can go, this is a post-American pie yes. teen movie renaissance is maybe too strong of a word because there's a lot of garbage in that genre but I, yeah. there's, I have a lot of affection for a lot of those because like you said it was it's a time period when that was either the the current environment you were in or i it just left the high school environment i was like oh i like you know the the teen stuff still appeals to me it's goofy it's slapsticky they were doing rated r a lot of times so it was a yes pushing the, some boundaries there um but yeah you also have like 
tearing up the box office, like true independent movie style. Um, it's Blair Witch Project year. Yeah. As well. Exactly. Um, so it's got this really fascinating um, wide variety of genres kind of at the peak of their game genre wise too, just in one calendar. You're like, holy shit. Yeah. Which we also, I should shout out to uh, one of my uh, favorite kind of casual film book reads um, in the last for actually probably, you know, one of my, my favorite casual film book reads, not like a textbook for film history class, uh, but Brian Rafferty wrote best movie year ever. There's periods after each word in there. Yeah. Oh, 1999 blew up the big screen. Uh, there's actually a really good audiobook of that too. And he just kind of goes through, um, I believe the format is like calendar year. Like it's just month by month, almost like every month there's something blowing your mind this year. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. No, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it, I guess do we want to just talk about like, you know, the, the major hits of that year or the, or the, you know, Oscar. Cause like there was like a good correlation with the hits and, oscars that year yeah me. yeah uh well you're you're a resident oscar guy so uh yeah. i'll let you start off with uh with the oscars for oh. for this year yeah i mean obviously well american beauty is is the film that that won and you know that movie did very well um i think overall like it it made a little over like 120 130 million which you know for a movie of that type that that kind of drama yeah you know i mean you probably wouldn't see that these actually days. It says production fifteen million worldwide, three hundred and fifty six million. Wow. wow! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would not have guessed that high at all. Yeah, um, but then of course the Sixth Sense uh, was was nominated uh, for um, I think a slew of them, and you know that was a huge hit, and that that was one of those movies that came out of nowhere with almost little fanfare. Oh yeah. And it just, it steadily grew each week in each week. Um, and, and the key with that one too, I mean, it established Shyamalan as like his own genre of movie. Yes. But people were not, at least the people, I, the, the film crew I was just talking about going to see, that was a huge crew going to see Sixth Sense because there was so much buzz about it. Nobody was spoiling it for anybody in my group. Yes. You know what I mean? Like it was one of those like unwritten rules where like, oh, you can't spoil this movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. No. And I think even still today, what it's almost 25 years and mm -hmm. it's still considered taboo. If you spoil that movie, yeah, like if you're one across somebody who's never seen it, you're like, Oh, oh I won't say anything. You gotta, yeah. you just gotta right. watch it. Yeah. Now for the, maybe for better, for worse, uh, that became M Knight's, uh, yeah. you know, calling card. Um, but then also one of the films that I'm going to be talking about, uh, in my, in my selections mm -hmm. was, uh, also one of the, the high nomination getters. So, I'm going to do a little tease there, but that there was go. that one was considered uh, a box office disappointment. So, um, you know, maybe Ooh, interesting to the math of, of yeah. what that one was. But but yeah, it's I think sometimes now American Beauty in the 2023 lens or even the Me Too lens, uh, you know, is somewhat maybe a little marred because of the fact that Kevin Spacey yeah. and Kevin Spacey kind of has a stigma to him now. And have uh, you gone back to American beauty at all recently? Cause I have, I have, I have. And I think I, it's like put up the blinders of, yeah. of that. I think, I, I do think it's a, it's a really good movie. Yeah. Um, I remember, uh, I was, this was, you know, I was, I was 16, but it was still like, you know, I had to kind of beg my dad to take me. Uh, <laughs> to see it. And, and my dad was, yeah, you know, like he, a big lover of films. And I think he was a little confused as, you know, with some of the, 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 
you know, the, the gay overtones, like, you know, especially towards the end of the film with, yeah. uh, with uh, Chris Cooper's character, I think, you know, it's kind of like, Oh, am I going to have to talk about this kind of stuff? Oh, from the, from the parent <laughs> angle, like, like oh, sure, yeah, yeah. or whatever. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, like we ended up having a good conversation and like, you know, nice. both agreed. It was like, it's like, that's a great movie, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I, sometimes I look at newer critics and they rank all, a lot of times the best picture winners. And that yeah. seems to keep getting like knocked down it as the years go down for or years go up for some yeah. reason. Uh, but uh, I don't know. There was something about it. It's very funny. Uh, it's, it's sad, um, but also yeah. there's visually striking. Uh, the, yeah. I think Conrad, Conrad Hall was the cinematographer. Great. I think he did Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid. Yep. Um, you know, and just that, that iconic image of um, Mira Cervani in the, in the bed of roses. That's, yeah. you know, I think that'll always stick with me. Uh, and Annette Benning, I underrated. Oh man. Yeah. Movie. She's so good. There's that scene where she's kind of like, slapping herself in the face you know you will sell a house today that, all that. <laughs> that was the, that's the clip in my head as soon as you said her name that i go to from that movie yeah uh, yeah yeah I mean, it maybe it became a cliche like you know the the woman's behind the yeah. the steering wheel screaming oh, yeah. you know like the, maybe it's cliche at this point but they that was like one of the first to do that so. yeah it was yeah 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 and i think we've mentioned a few times but it's always worth you know a reminder it's okay to engage with problematic art folks and yes has yeah. a weird look to it in this day and age. That's perfectly fine interpretation to have. Um, Absolutely, but it's also at this point a cultural item to be <laughs> examined yeah. and looked at and engaged with from 1999, which is not that long ago. I'm still sticking <laughs> with that. <laughs> right, but you know, as you as you already kind of mentioned, you know, this was to many people, I think, will be remembered as the the Star Wars episode one year you know because the hype yep. was yeah. unbelievable but then low key just about a month or so before was the matrix which yeah. you know the matrix i think almost overshadowed it in a lot of ways at least that year star wars just because of how innovative it was yeah. how it once again another movie that kind of completely came out of nowhere um i you know i distinctly remember sitting in the theater you know, watching that because, you know, one of my tropes here, HBO kid, they had. Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Had, oh, the making ofs. Well, they always had the, the making of. Yeah. Uh, or HBO first look is what they called it. Yep. It was like 15 minute. And basically now it's like, as I've probably described it before, but it's like it's just something that would be on a DVD special feature. Yeah. Um, But it was one of those things where I saw it and, you know, my dad and I. We're like, wow, that looks really cool. And then we went to go see it opening weekend. And it was just, wow. Like went back to that movie probably a couple times oh, yeah. uh, that that particular summer. And I, I would have thought I would have saw Star Wars Episode One a couple times. But I, I really only saw that once in the theater. That's a really great, yeah. Like it grabbed all of what we thought was going to be the, the cultural zeitgeist for films that summer was going to be all around. There's a new Star Wars. Yeah quality of that we can discuss at another time yeah <laughs> uh you know maybe lucas did that to himself by not being able to grab the conversation but yeah then the matrix kind of coming out of nowhere and that's all anybody was talking about and yeah. that was another one of those things like if you saw a buddy of yours 
and they hadn't seen the sixth sense, you're like, oh, we're doing that tonight. We're going to see the sixth sense because it's, yeah. it's, it's rewatchable. You can see more little clues and you want to experience that with somebody. And the other thing was the matrix. If they hadn't seen the matrix, you're like, oh, we're going, we're going this weekend. I'll watch that again, you know, in a second. Um, just kind of pouring over some of the, you know, the, I mean, the wow of the effects, but also the philosophy behind yeah. um, what Wachowski's put into um, the matrix world building there too. was just not, not expected. But also they kept it so under the, under the lid of like what it was kind of about, like, what is the matrix was the whole campaign to get you in this theater to see it. And even like early, 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 early website, um, you you can go there and, and, and experience the matrix. And it had a few more clues and Easter eggs to kind of intrigue you into the world. Um, Same with the Blair Witch Project. Like they kept that, the, the mythology going for that one as if it was a real thing. Like I had friends who like went to see that opening night and then were like, we got to go to Maryland. We got to, ch- I was like, it, it's not real <laughs> spoilers. Anybody. Um, and they were like, I, I don't know. I, I think it is real. And they were like, that was actually a debate. Cause you couldn't just go and debunk it with an internet site right away. All the internet sites for Blair Witch Project was like, it's real. Look at this. Yeah, no, that they had that great. There was a sci-fi channel special that was all about it um, before that movie came out. And it was, it was called like curse of the Blair Witch. I think. Yes. Yeah. And that, you know, Hold that it. would have been that was like that early viral thing, yeah. you know, even though it wasn't really I don't know. I'm sure you could eventually watch clips of it online. But like that was one of those things that got everybody buzzing. And I I was one of those people uh, with my group of friends. You know, we when we went to go see it, we yeah. thought it was a real thing. Yeah. Like this was a actual account of these people dying. And, you know. Yeah. Terrible. Well, to be fair, I, I was on the fence going to see it. I was like, is it? Because like it was so cleverly marketed. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I, I, my buddy who who was convinced it was real and wanted to head to Maryland for a long weekend and go, you know, Blair Witch hunting. <laughs> yeah. He had recorded that off Sci-Fi Channel. I remember rewatching it with him after we'd both seen the movie. And I was pointing at that it's on the sci-fi channel, not the history channel. Right, right. <laughs> Science fiction. And he was like, that doesn't matter. They're just the ones who bought the rights to blah, blah, blah. You know, we had that whole conversation. But yeah. Um, well, yeah you, so as far as highest grossing films go, you, you uh, I think we've kind of encapsulated a lot of that. Star Wars, clearly, you know, top of the box office. Uh, Sixth Sense, right behind it. Yeah. So one expected yeah. blockbuster, one not so expected blockbuster. And then Toy Story 2 expected blockbuster i would say right. awesome powers sequel yeah uh, the matrix like you mentioned uh tarzan the animated movie which oh, i yeah. don't remember thinking of that as a box office hit but no i don't i didn't see it i, I didn't I saw like, scene, yeah yeah there was this there was like these couple years and maybe you know teenage whatever but where i was like mr not disney like anti- right they're <laughs> <laughs> not anti- for school i mean but yeah but, well, is that very, that phase unless you're really into animation, um, where you're just like, ah, oh, animation's kid stuff, kind of, yeah, thing. and it's Disney, so right. Uh, then you got like the Mummy remake, Notting Hill, you know, classic yeah. at this point, yeah, yeah. uh, romantic comedy, which they just kind of don't make them like that anymore. And then the world is not enough. You had a Bond movie, um, oh yeah, as well. So that was probably one of the more forgettable ones, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that that gets us pretty oriented. I think into the year of of 1999, active. Uh, engaged moviegoers as we were. Um, I did, uh, I mentioned to you off mic, uh, Mike, I've mentioned to you off mic, um, that I've, I, when I was working at the art house theater in the evenings, when I was waiting to close it up, I would just go on letterbox and like rate movies that, uh, yeah. you know, through the years I would just pick a year. And at some point, I guess I went through and, and rated a bunch of 1999 movies. Cause I was checking for this episode. I was like, all right, I want to make sure I'm watching something new. Yeah. 
I had logged 112 movies for this year. Wow. Now, granted, my memory, and it's 1999. Okay, now I'm saying it is a long time ago. Sorry. Um, a lot of the, that has faded. And I was like, I watched that? Yeah. <laughs> so I, at some point I had, but I, I did want to do, I wanted to dive in, as I mentioned on the previous episode, something I'd never seen before. Um, I actually got two never seen before movies on my, uh, yeah, my that, I did the same thing mm-hmm. Two never before seen. And then one that I, I just think is, uh, was so cool and, uh, just very rarely gets talked about. So that's, that's where I went. That's exactly how I put my list together too. So, all right. <laughs> We're, uh, we stuck to the same format. Yeah. Well, I'll kick off, uh, with, uh, one of my honorable mentions, this is the one I have seen. Um, I haven't seen it in a while, but I went back, uh, you know, my actual film journal and was like, I was like, oh yeah, I do remember this really making an impression on me. I believe I did see it. Um, it was done in Cincinnati. I didn't live there, but there was a repertoire theater. I think it was called the Esquire at the time, or yeah. they would, it was art house and they would do repertoire programming, like cult stuff. I went down and watched the movie Jesus's son. Oh, okay. uh, from director Allison McLean. Uh, she is a uh, Canadian, New Zealand director which is an interesting okay. split because they're nowhere near each other <laughs> uh that's how she's credited on uh, on on wikipedia um it's an adaptation of a collection of short stories uh the main character uh i'm gonna do character names at first because i'm gonna talk about the cast in just a second <laughs> the <laughs> main character uh is billed as just f period h period like initials it's it stands for fuckhead and that's what they call him throughout <laughs> he's a fuckhead because he's a fuck up um and it follows the short stories are just like different adventures he has. And the film itself kind of plays as a, like a road movie almost actually, because it's, it's vignettes, but they're not like in sequential order. Anything. it's like, it's, it's fuckhead remembering or retelling some of these like stories of his life or whatever. And he's not like an old man, you know, looking back on his life. He's just talking about some shit that happened to him in the last few years. Um, I believe is how it is. And it's also set in like the early seventies, which I'm a sucker for. So yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting time period to be just sort of like this, you know, wander about, you know, have adventures kind of story here. Um, drug addict at a certain point. He's working like in an elderly care facility at a certain point. So just kind of these vignettes of him uh, out out and about in the world. And um, so some of it's funny. Some of it's some of it's quite comedic, actually. Some of it's very bittersweet. Some of it's pretty tragic. It's just yeah. kind of this great like sampling of of life. Um Maybe I, it appealed to me because of that Richard Linklater kind of vibe that I'm getting yeah. you know, mentioning how this is put together. Not necessarily a character you're going to like the whole way through. They're not he, the, the main character, Fuckhead, is not going to make, like, given his name, he's not going to make the best decisions. Sure. So it's one of those, it's not that you're identifying fully with that main character, but you're just sort of experiencing it through, um, through his eyes and through the performance and everything. So here's the cast. In 1999, star of the movie is Billy Crudup. Wow. Who I was a huge fan of, of like world traveler. And I, I don't know, I grabbed onto his, his, some of his early stuff and I was like, I like this guy a lot. Co-star Samantha Morton, Dennis Leary, Holly Hunter, Dennis Hopper, Will Patton, Jack Black, wow. Michael Shannon. <laughs> it just goes and goes and goes, but all in 1999. So, I mean, some of those are obviously established actors by then. Holly Hunter was, you know, recognized. Dennis Hopper, obviously. Dennis Leary, different different acting uh, career in 1999 than when we think of him now. This was yeah. like trying to shed the stand-up comedy, or maybe not shed it, but it was like, I'm adding into my repertoire. I'm not just a stand-up comedian anymore. Um, but it's, like I said, it's vignettes. Uh, it kind of loops around in an interesting sort of like elliptical way. Uh, the way memory kind of works is how I remember it, 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 yeah. it kind of playing out. Um, but it's not disjointed. I think um, I think Allison McLean holds it together really well, and it, it just has such a flow to it that it just... 
um, you know, I don't know, breezes by and like, I don't know, it was like, a, you know, 90 minutes, maybe, yeah. maybe a little bit more, but I should have checked to see where it's streaming, but I'm not sure. Go, go find it by physical media folks. <laughs> you can grab it somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Is that one you've seen or, or not? No, I have not. And I, I don't think I've even heard of that one uh, until just now. So, oh, good old Tubi. It's on Tubi right now. Tubi. If you're okay. listening to this, uh, the day ish it comes out, I can vouch for it right now, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, what's, uh, your, your lead off honorable mention, Mike. So my lead off, uh, honorable mention is another movie where, um, you know, it, it's one that I, I saw a while back and mm. immediately bought the DVD. Um, and actually from what I've learned, I, I introduced this to one of my professors who, um, you know, was big into editing. And I, I asked him if he had seen this movie and now he incorporates it in his curriculum when he talks about it. Oh, wow. What a compliment. Uh, yeah. It's from, from Steven Soderbergh, the limey. Oh, yes. Uh, so the limey uh, is basically about, uh, um, you know, a, uh, an Englishman, Terrence, Terrence stamp uh, comes to America because his, uh, his daughter has been murdered and um, it follows him along on this like twisted uh, tale as he as he's trying to figure out who did it. And um, it it with the editing, it's you know a lot of times this movie took so many different creative risks and choices that that are just so unique. Um, and I mean, there's times where like you're seeing footage of Terrence Stamp, you know not talking, but you're hearing all the, the audio, you know, everything's going through it, but then yeah. the way how it twists and turns, like, I mean, pretty much right from the get go. And it also has like a great needle drop of painted black. Um, oh <laughs> um, yeah. You know, like right towards the, the beginning. And um, so like, of course, when I, when I made a, a, a uh, my short film for that class, I, I had to use some painted black. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I hope, uh, Mick doesn't sue me, uh, <laughs> all these years later, but as uh, for educational purposes. You're yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but once again, a very like eclectic cast, you know, this was, you know, Soderbergh has a very interesting career where he's made these, um, he's made these Hollywood, uh, you know, big movies, oceans 11 remake and all that stuff. But then he was really almost like tapping in this, He's almost like Tarantino a little bit where he seems like he really respects um, different genres from a from a bygone time. You know, in this the limey kind of feels like a 70s um, kind of neo-noir. Yeah. Um, and uh, so but this also features a great cast, you know, Terrence Stamp, Peter Fonda, Luis Guzman is like one of those guys who in the in the late 90s was you know becoming a staple in the paul thomas anderson movies um it's really cool and it's it's about 90 minutes i mean it flies by and it's a bit of a head trip uh how the editing goes but i i really highly suggest that one it's uh it's very unique just because we're kind of keeping our headspace around what was going on in 1999 that was all this was like the the re-emergence of the independent wonderkind uh steven yes. soderbergh because he yes. you know after like kafka king of the hill post sex size videotape it seemed like there was a time period where like he wasn't really seemed like he wasn't finding his footing you know the underneath didn't hit 
yeah. but then he had out of sight, I think was the year before. Yes. And that was kind of like, oh, wait, he's back. He's got some some style. And I think that being a little bit more of a studio project, it felt to me at the time watching the Limey, because there's some interesting editing and out of sight as well. Yeah. And I felt like the Limey was more like, oh, maybe this is what he really wanted to do or got the ideas or the inspiration. Because it's like kind of back to back crime films. Yeah. In an interesting way. Um, but I mean, that's also a genre he's heavily, heavily explored post 99. Um, yes. But I remember that being like, seemed like out of sight was sort of the slightly more studio one than the Limey was like the one for him uh, coming out there. You're exactly right. And I, he now, he can make these movies very uh, cost effective. And mm-hmm. I think that's why also, you know, he gets, he'll get like a Warner Brothers or Max or whatever to let him make his kind of, his movies at a certain budget and it'll attract all these like great casts. So right. You know, like, like some of the stuff he's made recently that have exclusively gone to, to HBO max, max, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I like, I wish I could have saw some of those in the theater just because oh, yeah. he really, you know, I know he, he's all usually always serves as his own uh, director of photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's always playing with color palettes and yeah. And, and lenses too. Yeah. That, uh, Detroit one, I think he did that had, I don't know. I don't know. That was a interesting lens choice for that. Um, yeah. The Don Cheadle, Benicio del Toro. Yes, uh, no one, no, uh, no escape or something. No, fo- like no that. move. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, uh, but man, even the one with, there was a really talky one that he made with, uh, Meryl Streep that, um, it was really cool. Uh, uh, I, I just, uh like, let them talk. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then the one we were struggling to remember was no sudden move. No sudden move. Yeah. Okay. So. That's it. And one of the people hanging that are listening. So we got to. Yes. <laughs> he was wow. actually the, you know, he was the one who first brought back Brendan Fraser, not, not the whale, you know? <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> if people were paying attention. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I just, I recently watched, uh, the, was it the hacker Kimmy. Kim, yes. Uh, the one that he did. And yeah, I was just like, man, I want, He's on the big screen. Yes. <laughs> Which is interesting yeah. being a director of photography for his own movies and then not going the Christopher Nolan, Paul Thomas Anderson route of, I also want them to be projected in a theater. Like those just are married in my head. Like if you're that invested in the image that you're going to capture it yourself, it seems yeah. like you want to show that. I don't know, but that's just me. Yeah. But uh, just if anybody's interested, the Limey is streaming right now on Prime Video and Roku oh, cool. channel. Cool. So- Good call. Um, my uh, second and last honorable mention is a new one to me. It had been on my watch list for a while, and I couldn't um, find it anywhere. I ended up buying a DVD on eBay, and then, of course, uh, I'd forgotten I never searched it on YouTube. And it's <laughs> fucking on YouTube. <laughs> and honestly, the quality was about the same. I watched the DVD. But um, I wanted to go one um, outside the borders of the United States for 1999 as well. So I went to uh, Japan for this Ooh, one okay. and a movie that it, it was on my watch list. But when I, even when I saw it on my watch list, when I sorted it for 99, I was like, what the fuck is that movie? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know at what point I heard a recommendation or something about it, but it was I was on my watch list because uh, I was intrigued enough, but I, it didn't stay in my memory, apparently. And that is called Wild Zero. Oh, OK. A Japanese yeah, but... comedy horror film from uh, Tetsuro uh, Takeyoshi. Apologies if I mispronounce that. Um, I don't want to spoil anything on this movie because it's 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 a bonkers midnight movie. Yeah. So I had to have heard it recommended on some podcast somewhere or somebody at a at a film festival late screening or something <laughs> was like, oh, you like this? You got to watch this one. Um, it's from 99. So it has a certain um, 
I mean, it's not the way you, I, I would call them like v, VHS effects. Like, okay. yeah. you could, like this is clear. They're clearly not trying to sell you that this is real, but or almost like Godzilla. Like it's, you're, it's fascinating to sort of see the craft, even though you can tell it's not real and you're not buying this for a minute. Yeah. Um, sort of thing. Maybe that's unfair to some Godzilla movies. Anyway, <laughs> um, there's, if you're a fan of like, uh, one of my favorite genres is punk music and this isn't in that category, but it's adjacent. There's the, uh, the, what are they called? The power rock trio guitar wolf. Um, they're kind of, they're listed as the stars of this movie. They play in themselves, but it's really kind of their, their co-stars, um, in the movie. Um, so it's, if you're unfamiliar with their music, just real quick, all the, all of them are named for like their instruments. So there's like guitar wolf, drum wolf, like bass wolf, like that's yeah, how yeah, yeah, yeah. Ramon style kind of naming convention. Like we all have the same last name and we're all wolves and I love it. It's, it's awesome. So there's some footage of them playing and just rocking the house with, you know, just noise, intense noise rock, uh, is kind of how I think of it. I love it. But anyway, um, so yeah, you got guitar wolf, you got bass wolf, you got drum wolf all in there performing a couple of their songs, but it's really a story of one guy who's obsessed with rock and roll and the power of rock and roll. And I, he becomes blood brothers in the opening scene with guitar wolf, like guitar wolf cuts his hand, bleeds a little bit, cuts the other guy's hand after he's injured and they, and he pushes them together. So they're, they're now blood brothers. And so they can kind of, it seems like maybe science fiction telepathically communicate or feel each other. I don't know. It's kind of vague and weird and I loved it, but it's really him. Uh, this main character ace, um, so Ace and Guitar Wolf are the, you know, kind of connected by Blood Brothers, but it's really the story of Ace um, who, you know, leather jacket, slicked, combed up, greaser hair, all the, you know, rock and roll uh, kind of cliches there. He's just embracing that lifestyle. He um, returns and rescues uh, Tobio at this gas station from zombies because there's aliens, there's zombies. It's a bonkers midnight movie. Like, like it's, <laughs> it's got all of that stuff. Um, and I'll leave it at that. And it kind of goes through is is the wolf band is guitar wolf going to end up finding and 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 saving or helping ace or is ace going to learn to like survive on his own in this very comedic zombie apocalypse that just awesome ridiculous face makeup to make up the zombie all that and people are like what's going on why are they walking we're like they're clearly zombie what <laughs> um but just kind of a fun sense of play in the editing the performances are all just kind of over the top in that goofball kind of midnight movie way yeah and um it kind of just because we were talking about recently, uh, it kind of gave me some early Greg Araki vibes okay. in the production value. Yeah. Like it's clearly like running gun. Like you can maybe early Romero, like just because there is zombies, but it has that just low qual not low quality, sorry, low, low budget, like we're scrappy production, we're gonna get this movie made kind of vibe to it. Um maybe like I think Vinegerson just put it out too, like six string samurai. Yeah. Like okay. doing a genre film on a limited budget, you gotta get creative in you know costuming and locations and, and this movie really really does that um and then it ends with this awesome tagline which i thought like wow this is really awesome for 1999 uh not tagline the awesome voiceover that says love has no borders nationalities or genders and it just like it, it screams and i think it's guitar wolf just like screaming that with a guitar riff going you're like oh my god what a what a great cap because you know it is a, it is kind of a love story by the end of it um in, in, in a couple interesting ways i'll just leave it at that yeah um, but yeah, if you're curious, you can head over to YouTube, um, unless you want to drop 20 bucks on eBay. <laughs> well, I'll definitely check that out. If you're in the mood for like, it's late night, and you're like, I just want something kind of bonkers. I would say, yeah, check out Wild Zero. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the one, the next one that I saw, uh, this was one of those ones that I had not seen before. And it was, it's from a director that I really like. 
and I'm sad to say it was a bit of a disappointment. Oh, <laughs> but it is uh, Sam Raimi's For the Love of the Game. Um, so For the Love of the Game is a movie that has uh, Kevin Costner. Uh, he plays uh, a major league pitcher for the Detroit Tigers uh, named Billy Chapel. And he is near the end of his career. He is, he's getting up there in age, but he is, you know, he, he's won a world series. He's, he's pretty much done it all. Um, but uh, in this, in this particular film, he is in the midst of having probably the best game of his life. Uh, he's, everybody's getting out, you know, he's, he's pitching, you know, he's, he's striking people out. Uh, but we, while you're, while you're through the, going through the game sequences, which I think the baseball stuff is done amazingly great. Okay. Uh, you know, like I'm a big baseball fan. Um, and I think just, you know, Sam Raimi is a, is a Michigan Detroit guy. So, you know, like you can tell, like he has an affinity maybe for the tigers okay. and, then, uh, you know, there's a lot of great character actors who are, who are now, you know, some of our, maybe our bigger, dramatic actors are like jk simmons plays the coach oh yeah uh, brian cox plays the owner um you also have john c Riley. Oh my god <laughs> is go-to catcher you know so it's one of those things where great like when it's if it was just simply a baseball movie i think it would it would be great but while you're watching this we have these we get these flashbacks while he's going through so like there's some of it touches on his younger life but then the bulk of the of the runtime is devoted to this love story with uh, the late Kelly Preston. And uh, so her name is Jane and she, you know, they have kind of like this. Um, they have a meet cute along the side of the highway in New York, you know, where <laughs> her, her car is broken down and he, of course, gets it to start. But then it, it shows like they have this kind of weird relationship because you know, she has to travel a lot. He has to travel a lot, obviously, because he's a baseball player and she also has a daughter. Um, so it's it's basically he's thinking about all this stuff with her while he's having the game of his life. Oh, now, oh so it's it's the framing is like it's all during that game, but then it's the flashbacks. Yes. Oh, yeah. oh that's interesting. I like so that. I you know, and I, I didn't I don't hate this movie. But I would just say, like, it's very, it's, you know, mid, uh, <laughs> as the kids might say. So, <laughs> but because I, like I said, if it was just the game, you mm-hmm. know, if it was like maybe a little lead up and then, then he's having the game, like, you know, I think that would be great. But, of course, like, you can't just live probably solely on a baseball game or the movie would be over in like 90 minutes. <laughs> it would be very predictable. Um but uh, I I do give Sam Raimi. This is probably the least Sam Raimi Sam Raimi film. Okay. Um. So you know he was probably given this opportunity, given the shot uh, to dip more into the the sh- the studio realm, where you know I know all his the I, I think maybe Army of Darkness was released partially by Universal, but. You know, I, I think it was that was still uh, Dino De Laurentiis money. So, oh, okay. yeah. Um, so this was with Universal. It was, you know, pretty big budget and it didn't do super great. And also critically, it wasn't super acclaimed. But um, I I at least found it an odd, like an interesting oddity, um, you know, to see him 
in a different realm. And of course, now we kind of know him as big studio director because he did all the Spider-Man films. Yeah. Just did Dr. Strange. But uh, this was like his first step into that. And, uh, you know, I hope if he's listening, I, I love <laughs> man, I, uh, it's yeah. not, it's not me. It's, you know, it's, or it's not you. It's, it's just, it's me. Uh, <laughs> but, well, it, cause uh, it's only going to be based on just that structure. I'd forgot this. I'd forgot this movie even existed. Um, yeah. Based on just that structure, that is intriguing, but it's only going to be as compelling as those flashback sequences. And yeah, if those aren't engaging you, they're like you said, like let's get back to the baseball part. And <laughs> yeah, and it it gets that. close to like almost two and a half. I think it's like two. Oh hours no, no, no. Yeah. So that's that's part of why I think it was it was just like it, it went a little maybe too long. But like I said, um, I just I always enjoy like John C. Riley just puts a smile on my face when. Oh I'm yeah. Playing. So you know, I wish he they gave him a little more to do in this movie and Kevin Costner uh, to, you know, I think is sometimes underrated. Uh, I, sometimes he can be considered wooden uh, in his, in his performances uh, sometimes. Yeah, but I, I feel like, like he's one of those, he's got a, a certain range and when he sticks with it within that range for his roles, he's perfect. Yeah. But then not, he stretches every now and then gives you a Mr. Brooks and you're like, I, I don't, no, 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 man. <laughs> yeah. There's times when like Billy Chapel, the Billy Chapel character is kind of like unlikable, especially when it comes to this uh, relationship with, with yeah. Kelly Preston. And, you know, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but I think uh, Kelly Preston was woefully miscast in this movie. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it, you know, it, it probably should have been somebody else, but, yeah. um, but that's all I'll say. <laughs> it, it's available to watch on Peacock. It's certainly okay. an interesting, um, you know, thing to, you know, relic of that. Uh, oh, sure. Know, Sam Raimi's career, I would say. I'm also seeing here that uh, Costner was given the generous rights of final cut privilege, normally given to producer or director, Ooh. if anyone, and director approval. So maybe you can blame the running time on Costner because this is peak Costner yes. hours in Hollywood right now, too. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's back in the baseball realm. I'm sure the studio was just like, oh, Field of Dreams money. Here yeah. we come. And yeah, doesn't sound like that worked out for them. Yeah. Financially speaking. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so which film did you end up uh, picking? I went with a movie that uh, I, I know one of my former college roommates is, is a listener. So uh, Justin, and I finally sat down and watched The Buena Vista Social Club. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ry Cooter. I discovered the joys of Cuban music many years ago. But it was only recently that I learned just how many of the long-forgotten, yet legendary Cuban musicians were still alive and well. Director of Wings of Desire in Paris, Texas, comes the story of an American musician who went searching for the sounds of an island and discovered the soul of a people. Artisan Entertainment presents the Buena Vista Social Club. 
They were part of a wonderful tradition that was just waiting to be rediscovered. Vim Vendor's documentary um, about the the album, which I, I mentioned, Justin, specifically because I was that roommate. This was uh, back in the CD era because this was 1999. I made a copy legally of this soundtrack from the library, uh, burned, it to deep, burned it to a CD, and I loved this soundtrack. I, it was just yeah. my background music for so much. And then so my, my roommate, Justin, at the time was just like, can you play fucking anything else? Or I would get home and I'm like, oh, I got to do some study and write a paper tonight. And he's like, well, I guess we'll be here in Buena Vista Social Club coming out your room. But I never watched the movie, which I was like, and he will give me shit for that all the time. I mean, no more, no more. Um, so I finally sat down and I watched the movie and it is, it's all about the music. It's yeah. all about the music. It's actually though. Um, and I should have seen this coming. One of the documentaries I watched in film school and one of the documentary classes I, I, I took, uh, we studied, uh, DA Pennebaker. Um, yeah. I mean, it was a trio of, of, of documentarians who were studying this class, but <laughs> yeah, it's one of the greats. Uh, and, and the one we watched was original cast album company where he makes a documentary about the original, um, cast from the Broadway uh, Sondheim, I believe. Um, sorry, I'm a little rusty. I haven't seen that one in a long, long time. Yeah, I, I think you're. Yeah, you're right. Sondheim, okay. Um, but it's like the Broadway cast, but it's not about them putting on the Broadway show of it. It's about them recording the uh, official like recording soundtrack for the musical to be released on. You know, at the time, this is a 19, I think, 70 documentary uh, on vinyl, possibly, yeah. possibly a track. But um, but it's about recording the album. It's not about putting on the production. Anyway, this. I think Vim Vendors, the director here, took kind of some it took some influence and approach from there because we get the behind the scenes recording of the album footage. Like they're all in the studio. Um, Ry Cotter, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Boy Nevis to Social Club, uh, musician and uh, music fanatic, I would say. Uh, he goes down to Cuba and assembles like these legendary musicians from like it's it's almost like an exploration in um, documenting local music. Uh, yeah. in, in a way, but it becomes this global phenomenon, which is kind of awesome. Um, and he gets together all of these uh, performers who used to perform at the Buena Vista Social Club, which was a place that was functioning um, down in, in Cuba. And all these amazing musicians work there. And a lot of them, like, I think are they're still will play music or whatever, but they don't have what we would consider from a American music industry perspective, like a music career where they're just putting out all these albums or whatever. So he gets all these, uh, aging musicians together and they, they can definitely still play. (laughs) It's, it's wow inducing. So there's, there's footage of, uh, uh, ride down there with his son going around and assembling these musicians. And there's also candid, like to the camera, um, little bios that the musicians give along the way, um, and it's, it's paced out really good. You don't just get a whole clump of talking heads. You get this mix of, of, of time periods and almost like narrative threads. Cause then there's also the studio sessions, sessions where they're recording intercut. And there's also live footage of them performing in Amsterdam and at, I believe Carnegie hall kind of all intercut in like several narrative threads, um, as you're going through the documentary. So, you know, you're 60 minutes in and you're still, um, getting an, another little intro to a musician you've been watching for a little while. And you're like, Oh man, I'm getting their story. Not it's so engaging and it just flies by and the music is fantastic. Um, I'm so pissed. I didn't go see this at a theater with great sound on a big screen. Yeah. 99 is clearly shot on a film. I feel like maybe there is maybe some digital video shot, some of the candid, like on the street stuff, but, um, and also, as I was looking up something, some stuff about this movie too, I am woefully behind on uh, Vim Vender's films. Oh yeah, myself. so I gotta, I gotta, I gotta correct that soon. But he um, has a new one coming out this year. I'm pretty sure. Or, or, yeah, 
I think it premiered at Cannes, something like that. Yeah, that I think you are correct there. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I got a, I got some more watch assignments for myself. But Born <laughs> yeah. Social Club, what a shock! And I'm also I don't speak Spanish. I uh, was humming and singing along because like I just played that album so much. It was just such like a. It's still a little bit the dog days of summer, folks. If you want to throw that album on, it's a good kind of just hang out on the patio. Yeah, uh, with some friends and um, I mean actively listen to it if you want to as well. It's it's great for that musicians out there, but um. It was just like the background soundtrack for like a year of my life when it came out, and I never watched it until now. <laughs> no, I that that's I have not watched it either. I I know of it, and I used to see, you know, when I was at like a record store or CD store or whatever. Like yeah. I would always see that that album was there, and I was like, "What is that? Like, what is you know?" Yeah. So I I'm aware of what it is, and I uh, yeah. I'm almost it's, embarrassed to admit it, but it's uh, another, well, I mean, don't be, I only corrected it like a couple of days ago, <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, it, it became a, a, speaking of like, when we talked about these interesting things that just popped up to become the conversation in 1999 in the world of film, you know, how matrix took over the conversation space that yes. maybe star Wars is going to have. This one was all over the art house scene in 1999. Yeah. And as a documentary, specifically a niche music history documentary, it made $23 million at the box office. Wow. So like it really did grab the zeitgeist, both musically and, you know, art house uh, circuit kind of wise in 1999. And uh, for a good reason. I would yeah. Say. So I part, part of me wonders like, cause I do remember that when it, when it was out um, that it was often like, it seemed to be in the Friday section of the plane dealer yeah. for weeks and weeks and weeks. So I'm, I'm wondering, is that maybe one of the all time, you know, Cedar Lee high grocers or something like that. I bet that might be, or like the length of time too, because it just kept going and kept going. Yeah. Um, and the time I was there, it was definitely Amelie, <laughs> but oh, yeah. this yeah. one, it was one of those, I'm guessing, yeah, like you're right. I think it just hung around. And then if nothing else, it'd be one of those like six weeks into the run, you're like, ah, nothing looks good this week. Oh I, yeah, I'll go watch that again. Just, you know, <laughs> be at the concession stand and hear some great music and watch the, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, highly recommend. Uh, I did find it streaming, somewhere although now i think it was on max or one of those so okay um, it, it was a, it was around streaming i found it real quickly but again i would say buy this one if you can i'm going to uh certainly i marked it on my to buy list uh because i'm sure there's a bunch of great bonus content on there but yeah um, it feels that sounds like a, a criterion it very well maybe yeah i don't yeah didn't uh it's on my list to buy i didn't do any investigation yet but uh, yeah yeah <laughs> so you also watched a brand new one mike what did you end up uh picking for your 1999 watch challenge yeah so as i kind of alluded to earlier i picked a movie that i had not watched and it was that year it was nominated for seven academy awards including best picture and best director first and only best director nomination i believe for michael mann uh it's the insider you go public and 30 million people hear what you gotta say. Nothing, I mean nothing, will ever be the same again. Now the work we did here is confidential, not for public scrutiny, any more than our one's family matters. We're very serious about protecting our interests. He's got something to say, he wants to say it, I want it on 60 Minutes. Maybe for the audience, it's just voyeurism, something to do on a Sunday night. And maybe it won't change a thing. And people like myself and my family are left hung out to dry, used up, alone. What does this guy have to say? I don't be paranoid, Jeff. That threatens these people. Well, it isn't cigarettes are bad for you. Who is this? 
They have no right to hide behind a corporate agreement. He can talk, we can air it. The worst kind of an organized smear campaign against a whistleblower. Shoplifting, failing to pay child support. They can paint everything with that brush. What, what are you going to do now? You're going to finesse me, lawyer me some Mike. more? Try Mr. Wallace. If we aired this segment... I was told... Don't talk! Mind my own business. We could be a grave risk. We're doing this with or without you, Lowell. Are you a businessman or are you a newsman? He's only the key witness in the biggest public health reform issue in U.S. history. Does he go on television and tell the truth? Yes. Is it newsworthy? Yes. Are we gonna air it? Of course not. Why? Because he's not telling the truth. No, because he is telling the truth. And the more truth he tells, the worse it gets. You manipulated me into this. I fought for you and I still fight. The American public need to know. Jeffrey! And you wish you hadn't come forward? Dr. Wagland's deposition will be part of this record. You wish you hadn't blown the whistle? Jeffrey! Do I think it's worth it? I told the truth. It's valid and true and provable. These people, that's not the point whether you told the truth or not. And uh, for some reason, like, I always felt like I had seen that. It just seems like a one of those ones that, that seemed naturally. But just racking my brain, I was like, I don't know much about this at all. And um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, the insider is for any of the uninitiated, um, like like I kind of was. I, I do remember seeing the trailers back in the day. But yeah. um, it's basically about a, a whistleblower. Uh, played by Russell Crowe. He's kind of, um, you know, he works for a tobacco company. And, you know, spoiler alert, you know, smoking cigarettes is not good for you. Uh, but, <laughs> but the companies, uh, <laughs> the, the companies try to market it, as, you know, as that, that it is safe and, and everything, and, you know, through all the research. So basically, um, you know, Russell Crowe plays uh, Jeffrey Wing- Wigard, who is uh, preparing to to come forward to talk about this. And uh, we see through the lens of a 60 Minutes producer um, played by Al Pacino. And I've, I've determined now after recently rewatching Heat and uh, that like Al Pacino was born to chew Michael Mann like um dialogue uh and to say oh, the okay yeah in yeah like the, the best way like fuck, fuck. you know he just yeah. he knows how to like deliver michael mann's uh like dialogue mm-hmm. so great uh and this this was a co-write from um eric roth who uh oh whoa really i forgot uh, about that part yeah it, eric roth is he's interesting because you know he he co-wrote or he wrote the screenplay for Forrest Gump, but you know, lately he's been doing a lot of collabs with uh, Spielberg, hasn't he? Yes, with Spielberg. Uh, oh, why can't I think of his name? Fincher, David Fincher. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So the very first half, this movie is almost like a, it's like a, a movie of two halves. So like you have this, you know, they're they're really trying to to get Jeffrey to to do this testimony, and he finally. You know, he finally does the interview. Now he's not very comfortable, and obviously, immediately as as he did it, there were there was a lot of like people watching him and his family that they had to kind of move into like a secrecy. 
And then part phase two of the movie is basically uh, CBS's refusal to air the the interview with the the thought that they're going to be sued uh, because they were in the middle of potentially being bought out by a larger corporation. So it becomes Al Pacino's character, um, you know, basically is trying to fight for this. He's just like, you know, we, we need to play this, you know, CBS is being there. Like, I think the, I forget the words that he like bitches or pussies, something like that. Like, <laughs> something, you know, yeah, something Michael Mannish. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He just, you know, he thinks it's very cowardly. Yeah. Um, and there's actually, there's one really great scene, um, with uh, Al Pacino and Christopher Plummer who plays um, um, Mike Wallace. And Oh my God, like that's like, like those two actors, like man, that, that that scene is just so powerful. Uh, But, but, you know, essentially it uh, you know, the second half is where it, it, it really, I think comes to be a great movie. Uh, Cause like the first half is, is, is good. And I was like, okay, I can see why this was, critically acclaimed and everything, Mm -hmm. but it's really comes together in that second half. Um, And it is, it is a little lengthy, you know, it's like two forty, but, but I think it's in some ways it's, it's essential to, to really feel, get you through this journey uh, that, uh, that all the characters are on. And Russell Crowe, who at that point, I think, you know, he did LA confidential. He did like a few other things. I think this is really, the movie um, that he probably should have won the Oscar for. I think he won the next year for gladiator, um, which I, I think gladiator is a good film, but I, I, I still, it still blows my mind that one best picture uh, <laughs> over traffic. Um, like, come on really. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think Russell Crowe is so good in this and I would have, you know, in a perfect world, Russell Crowe would have won Al Pacino probably would have won supporting actor and all that. But uh but yeah, a really, a really cool film. And uh, so now I can really check that off the Michael Mann <laughs> uh, list. And he has a new one coming out this year as well. About oh, yeah. Ferrari. Uh, so like a long gestating project, if I remember correctly for him. Yeah. Ferrari. Yeah. I, mean, I don't Michael Mann is just uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe just because I really like Thief and I really like Heat. But mm-hmm. I feel like I don't know, like I know he's talked about, but like sometimes I feel like he's sometimes just taken for granted maybe. And yeah. uh, this is another, uh, you know, good film in his, um, ouvoir. Yeah, I was going to say, I, just to back up the running time thing, it's, uh, it, I think it flies by, like I've never felt yeah. a running time on this one. Um, I, I got to see this at a free preview screening when it came oh, nice. out, a buddy of mine and I went to see it. And when we left the people were at, you know, getting your, taking the temperature of the audience as they walk out and everybody in front of us, they were like, Oh, what did you think? They're like, Oh my God, it was so long. I know cigarettes are bad. Who cares? Like it was a very, like not, not warm reception. They got to us and they're like, Oh, what'd you think? I was like, it's amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, it, and then they're like, Oh, did you, Oh, and everybody was like, Oh, it's so long. It's I'm like, no, I could have watched that for another hour easily. Like the way he sets up the drama between will, will, uh, Wigan, uh, record what he knows and be an actual whistleblower on the record. But then it's not like he's doing it in court where it's immediately on the record. It's like yeah. there and you know, the evil cigarette corporation, like they have all the money and the goons to like try to silence him. And it's not really out yet. It's just recorded. So his life gets fucked with. And like you said, the second half, it just propels you forward. Like you just don't get a, a chance to be like, oh, that's that was a whole hour. Now what do we do? Like it just it moves 
so seamlessly into that second half and just the way that man just kind of stacks the conflicts and drama on top of each yeah. other. Oh, it's just so good. Yeah. And so many, another like showcase of great character actors like Philip Baker Hall. Oh yeah. Um, like he plays, uh, I think he's like one of the heads of CBS news. Uh, you got Rip Torn in there, you know, and he's always, uh, you know, good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, another actor who, you know, he passed away too early I, or, or maybe no, he's still around Bruce McGill. Um, I, I thought for some reason I thought he passed away, but uh, Bruce McGill's really good, you know, kind of gets his moments. I think he's on the, the council for uh, big tobacco and everything. So. Oh yeah. He's not the good guy. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, he pops up and usually like he's up to something. Yeah, I feel like of. even like Gina Gershon pops up as like a lawyer or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, well, there's, uh, you're right. Gina Gershon's in it, but then also, um, Debbie Mazar, uh, you know, and she was oh, like, yeah. for a while, she was like a, a good, um, character actress in that time. And then she, she had like a good run on entourage. Um, uh, but, oh, yeah. uh, but yeah, uh, just, uh, one of those, uh, you know, it's, I don't know why I never saw it until now, but, uh, I'm glad that I did, but that, that one's, it's not streaming. It's, it's, one of those like Disney touchstone picture movies. Oh, like Trap in Limbo maybe. Yeah. They're in like this weird, like if Disney plus was all, you know, I think they sometimes allow R rated content, but I'm sure it would be on there or Hulu. Yeah. But there's like a handful of those touchstone Hollywood pictures, movies that are kind of maybe afterthoughts. So, you know, they're not really given like the, the streaming push that they maybe. Yeah. Just, just, just buy it folks. It's, yeah. it's one of those, um, I mean, I'm a, one of my sucker genres is journalism movies, even if they're bad. Like yeah. I just like the profession and I like when it's explored somewhere and that one, you know, all being about a 60 minutes, you know, news expose and behind the scenes and decisions. I, I think there's a, there's a lot in the movie to go back and rewatch it a few times. Again, it's very compelling. Yeah. Um, and if you like either of the actors, you're going to want to watch it more than once. So yeah, yeah just buy Absolutely. it. There's some good extras on there too, but. So our official watch challenge picks for the year in film that was 1999 are the Buena Vista Social Club and the Insider. Mike, what challenge have we got in front of us for next time? So now that we're getting into the fall, I, I thought it might be good to have films that have a college setting. So just has to be has to take place at a college. That's it. I Yeah. I mean, I would say. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know. I haven't really given it much thought. Just yet. parameter. I like it. No, I like it because I can go in all wild different genres of like you know Animal House slapstick craziness or uh, uh, for some reason I went right to higher learning. I don't know why. <laughs> oh yeah, oh. Uh, you know intense like multi character social drama. Like so, yeah, well, I'm curious to see what we uh, what we dig up for for college setting. Absolutely. Um, well, if you'd like to suggest a future topic or genre you'd like us covered on the show, or if you're like, oh my God, they have to do PCU or who knows what, you know, hit us up on uh, social media. The links are in the show notes or uh, watchchallengepodcast.gmail.com. Yeah, remember, we are now on Instagram, so give us a follow there. It's Watch Challenge Podcast. I'm glad you said that. I'll add that to the links in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, until next time, folks, rate and review the show, whatever podcast app you're using, and we'll see you with the next challenge.